Namotasa Pakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Namotasa Pakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Namotasa Pakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Bhutang Dhammang Sankang Namasavami It's good to see so many people come for meditation. Uh, it is a hard time to meditate after a good meal, so hats off to you for giving it a go. That was a half-hour meditation. But if you think about it, watching YouTube for half an hour, it's gone. Watching YouTube for four hours, it's gone. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Whereas meditation, it's, it's, uh, it, I don't think it comes naturally to many people. It, it, because our minds tend to be rest. Some, some are natural meditators and they just absorb in, into concentration very easily. But for most of us, we have to do quite a lot of training. And again, I started with the importance of the posture. So you can see for those of you who are new to meditation, how the body starts to impact your attention, how pain, discomfort, and you get really, really restless. And you're trying to trying to find the perfect posture, so you'll never get the perfect posture. This doesn't exist. You'll always have some discomfort, but but you can you can work on getting uh, like a strong hara, the kind of center of your body. If you get that strong, it's easier to hold up the back. You can work on opening your hips, so that your knees fall down, so you have less pain on the on the knees. You can work on just holding your chest open. I do a lot of this. I think we all do, right? Like learning to hold your chest open uh, and your neck up. And that those are kind of muscles that you build, right? They're muscles like anything else. And uh, any skill, any craft that you have, you have to sort of put in the effort physically, mentally, emotionally. Okay, So, so like yoga or tai chi or... All these different things that exist from, from Asia. Asia has given us tremendous uh, tools for, for spirituality, tremendous tools. Huh? So posture is important. Uh, now, like for myself, I'm getting, not getting, I am old. <laughs> okay, I mean, I'm there. So my knees have had two operations and so on and so forth. And so... Now I have a cushion. My cushion seems to get larger every year. I'll be in a chair someday. But I can still meditate. Right? I, can, I can just, I have to reorganize my posture. But I have to put attention on, okay, if I'm sitting in a chair, I have to think about what's good for the body. How can I get energy going? What's stable? So if I'm sitting on a chair, I'm going to get my feet stable. Maybe I lift the chair a little bit get my head up, get off the backrest, or put a, a little cushion back there. So you can change your posture. You can meditate walking. So walking meditation is, is, is much favored by monks, actually. I should think the majority of monks prefer walking to sitting quite often. Um, especially, like, maybe a young monk has a lot of anger or lust or, or, or whatever, has a lot of energy, and they walk back and forth, and they walk, watch that energy. And walking meditation is, is very simple. You, you, you find yourself a path of maybe, hopefully, 20 paces. But if not, you use like this room would be fine. And the ends of the, of the room or the ends of the path are like 
the end of the in-breath and the end of the out-breath. They're the markers. So you establish your path. So I walk in the library a lot, in the monk's library. That's 20 paces, 20 paces that I use. So I start at one end, and I just mark, I just, just bring myself to the present moment. Just like with the breath, I bring myself to my posture. I feel my, 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 my feet on the ground. I just notice the air, the temperature, the heat in the room. and really bring myself to the present moment, get away from thought. That's the challenge. Away from my planning, uh, whatever mind. This is the way it is now. Penyang Niang in Thai. Penpuru in Thai. So then I establish my attention on the body, and then I make a determination to walk the 20 paces to the other end with the intention of not wandering, staying in the present moment. And when I started, I could do maybe two paces. One, two, and I'm gone. I'm in, I'm in another land, fantasizing. And then maybe one pace before, oh, I wake up again. That's why you have the ends of the path, because the ends of the path wake you up. If you just go for a long walk in the woods, it's good exercise, but you might be thinking all the time. You know, thinking about shopping, going to Costco, getting some, getting some orchids at Costco or something like that. Right? You'd have a good walk, but you might not be really in the present moment. So we're trying to be in the present moment, and the walking path is very good for that. If you Like uh, uh, some of the monks here, like one of the monks has, has a lot of um, uh, sort of inflamed hip problems. After the puja, he goes out and does walking meditation. Sometimes monks are just very sleepy. They have a lot of problems sleeping. They get out and do walking meditation. So you walk back and forth. You stop. You turn around mindfully. And then you start mindfully. Now, this is boring. Right? But once you get into it, it's very peaceful. It's not like an interesting YouTube presentation. <laughs> It does not excite the mind. And that's the point of meditation. It's not about exciting the mind. It's about calming the mind. That's why it's very difficult in the beginning. Because we're used to looking at an object to excite the mind, right? And we're interested in this is good. Or we're frightened by something or angry at something. So we get engaged in a passionate way with things. Now, the breath is not passionate. It's very neutral. And to stay attentive to that, you have to bring energy forth. But that energy is calming rather than exciting. That's why it's difficult. So walking back and forth is very good. Like if you, like if you, let's say you have to go for a job interview, right? And you're you're really hoping for this job, and six million people are applying it, and two are going to get it, right? You're you're poor. I really need this job. Walk to walking meditation, right? Just just feel the feel the energy of your anxiety. Walk back and forth. Walk back. It's very calming. Very very helpful. So we have walking meditation. Sitting meditation, standing meditation is very few people do that. The people that do it tend to be people who do tai chi and qigong. And the Chinese have uh, have developed ways of like being very centered with the body uh, and 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 holding energy in the hara and being very. I've never I've never developed very much standing meditation. I found uh, I, it wasn't attractive to me. But anyone who does that usually they they go through they do tai chi or qigong. Qigong they do it. Uh, and then the fourth posture is the lying posture, lying down posture. It's probably the most difficult because of <laughs> snoring. People fall asleep, right? And yet, it can be a very, a very uh, fruitful posture. And, and what I find is people who have chronic pain, 
people who have a lot of problems in their knees and their hips, uh, they quite often can do lying meditation the best because they've had to learn. Their bodies just find it difficult uh, sitting, whatever. So in, in, in lying meditation, you usually see pictures of the a Buddha in the Parinibbana posture, lying on the right side of the hand there. That's very difficult because the shoulder gets tight because it's being pressured on, and, and the hand gets a bit crushed. So another way to do it is to do Sarvasana, which is the corpse posture. In, in yoga, you lie on your back, your hands are down like this or on your thighs, and you set up your posture real, real straight. You get your neck right, and you take, you know, you take some time to sit, and it's not like going to sleep. Now, going to sleep is you want to annihilate the mind, right? You, you want to forget about the world. But lying meditation is not about annihilating the mind. It's about being very, very present and bright. So the problem you face in lying meditation is that as soon as you feel discomfort, any discomfort, your automatic response usually is to go over to the side into a kind of fetal posture and fall asleep. That's what, you, you know, that's what we've been conditioned for decades. Lay on your back, go to sleep. How do you go to sleep? Mm. Right? So you don't want to do that. You want to be bright and awake. So in, in lying meditation, you, you, you try to do it actually when you're quite awake, obviously. If you want to go to sleep, go to sleep. But let's say you're, maybe it's like, late afternoon or evening and you're not sleepy and you're having difficulty developing a sitting posture, try, try lying. So try to lay down, make sure your neck is supported, lay your, lay your, lay your, lay your hands down, get your feet nice and straight, adjust your posture 10%, stop, don't move. And that's very important not to move then. Okay? So you got your posture, and within 30 seconds, you'll feel some discomfort. You'll feel a bit of itching or, or whatever. That's when it becomes meditation, because when it gets dis uncomfortable, then you start to react to get rid of the discomfort, and you're lost in the body. You don't want to do that. You want to use the discomfort as the object of awareness so you become more still with it. So let's say... Um, I'm, I'm lying down, and um, I've adjusted my posture 10%, and maybe I start to get, my, my right hip starts to feel a bit pinched or whatever. Then that very sense of, of, of just slight discomfort, that becomes the object of awareness, and I don't move the body. That's very important. Now, if I don't move the body, then the very, very bodily discomfort takes me to a deeper awareness. Rather than usually when I try to sleep, I take the bodily discomfort, try to get more comfortable, and I fall asleep. So this is how you break the habit of laying down and sleeping. It's a very difficult meditation. Most people fall asleep. But if you think about it, if you can develop it, if you can develop it, it's very, very profitable. Because you can hold that, once you get that, you can hold that posture for two hours, no problem. You do it six hours, eight hours a night, right? It's not a problem. And, and it's very good if you, if you have difficult sleeping. You know, if, if, you're, if you're having problems sleeping, uh, you take sleeping pills. Uh, you can do walking meditation. When you say, well, why don't I just try lying meditation? Let's give this a go. And then you have to set your mind to it. Right? So you have to say, well, this is now meditation. And the secret is the stillness. The stillness of the body.
So most people, you know, their their favorite posture is sitting or walking. But what you're trying to do in any posture is be aware, to be mindful and be present. Very important, very, very important. And so hopefully these formal postures of meditation, sitting, walking, st- standing, lying down, become ways that then you are more mindful in everyday life. If I'm mindful for half an hour watching my breath, I'm going to be more mindful with my speech for a little time, <laughs> right? I'm going to be more careful when I send an email because I'm more mindful. I'm going to be more careful when I um, make the coffee or whatever. I'm going to be more present. Huh? And so mindfulness begets mindfulness, obviously, and heedlessness begets heedlessness. So that's about meditation. So I like to sell meditation. I, I might go for it, kind of. Meditation is a lifetime Skill that takes many lifetimes. <laughs> you know, there's a there was a famous family of tabla and sitar players, Khan family, and one of the great tabla players was asked, "So, how long did it take you to learn a tabla?" He said, "Lifetimes." There's a whole Asian way of looking at things. Anyway, uh, if you think meditation is like something you can pick up and do half an hour every month, good luck. <laughs> you know, you know, can you play golf? You know, half hour every month, you can't. Right? So you have to invest time into it. So you need quality time and quantity time. It's not just like, oh, this is nice. So Ajahn Chah would say, if you want to meditate, meditate. If you don't want to meditate, meditate. <laughs> because uh, very often the thing... Like dullness, you learn about dullness, you learn about restlessness, you feel anger and whatever. In those very meditations where you're not comfortable, you learn a lot about yourself, a lot about yourself and about meditation. So if you can do, if, if you want to develop this seriously, you try to do some meditation every day, uh, half an hour at least, if, if, if it's going to be effective, and try to like look at your, your time, like how much time did I spend on YouTube? So people tell me, oh, I haven't got time to meditate, Bhante, and ask them, how, how long were you on the computer? Oh, nine hours. <laughs> and how much of that was work? So, you know, we do waste a lot of time in our culture. We do waste a lot of time. But meditation isn't easy. You know, it doesn't come easy. You have to kind of have a, have a, have a sense of interest in it. But the rewards are very, are, are very considerable. That you imagine you can, you can bring your mind to stillness. And you can bring your mind to quietness. You can bring your mind to compassion and be more mindful throughout the day. So it's a it's a huge part of obvious of, of Buddhist training of the mind. So enough of that. Um, I've been thinking about uh, like now that our winter retreat is over. I've been thinking about work because we are in a work mode again. And not that meditation is not work. It's a different kind of work, but just. Uh, so I was just thinking about um, right livelihood, uh, which is part of the Noble Eightfold Path, Samajiva, Achip in Thai, comes from Ajiva, yeah. And right livelihood is a very important part of monk's life, lay life. How do I, you know, how do I make my bread? How do I put food on the table? Um, what is my livelihood and how does it affect me and my culture and my society? 
And in, in, in Buddhist thinking, there's, there's many, many ways we talk about this, but one of the ways we talk about work is that work has three aspects to it. One aspect is you've got to make a profit. <laughs> your income has to be greater than your expenses. If it's not, you fall into debt. You can't, you can't pay for the mortgage. You can't put food on the table. You can't get kids to school. You can't go to the movies. You can't do anything. So you have to, you have to make a profit in some way. Right? And that's the obvious thing. That's the very obvious thing. And and the idea of that is that you can you have a, a basic, a good enough physical life. You know that you have food on the table, that you have clothing, that you have medicine, um, that you have shelter, and so on. It doesn't have to be exquisite or elaborate or or whatever, but it has to be enough that your mind isn't consumed with getting the the basic requisites of life. And that's why Buddhist compassion implies that for all beings. That as much as possible, as much as our resources allow, that somehow we facilitate that for other people. Because if, if people aren't eating enough, if they have no shelter, if they have no medicine, they have no clothing, there's going to be no Dharma in the world. There's going to be simply animal striving for survival. Right? So it's, a, it's kind of... Um, you know, the Buddhist ideas of, of community and culture and compassion are based on that very, very simple principle. Like if I don't have enough food, uh, you know, if there's, if there's just a loaf of bread between 20 of us, one of us is going to punch the other to get the loaf of bread. Eventually it'll happen. And it'll bring out all kinds of difficult things in our, in our mind. So that's very important, both individually, family, and so on. So that's the obvious thing of, of so in marriage, you a partnership in marriage or family, somehow the whole family works out, has to work out, kids included. And like, how much are we spending and how much is coming in? And, and kids quite often don't have that perception that things cost money. A new pair of Nike trainers costs money, right? It's not, it just doesn't come out of the air. The more each individual in a family unit has that sense of responsibility, the more that unit is actually harmonious. Same with us monks, you know. We live... Uh, we live incredibly luxurious lives. Look at this thing. <laughs> it's worth, you know, it's worth a million and a half dollars. And I'm a beggar. I've got no money. But we have to be very careful not to take for granted, not to waste things, not to just think, well, because I'm amongst someone should give me something. We have to be very, very careful to, not to take it for granted. And that's for our right livelihood, to be always grateful and, and, and um, frugal and to take care of the requisites and take care of the place for everyone. The second aspect of, of, of work is, is that whatever skill I have in my uh, vocation, that I can make that skill better. So if I'm, if I'm running the household and uh, I'm in charge of the um, grocery funds and, and, the, and the household bills and so on, then I try to do better home economics. That's work, isn't it? I try to be more skillful in shopping or more skillful in the use of energy or, or uh, uh, do less with new furnishings or whatever it might be. If I'm an uh, IT worker, I try to improve my IT skills. If I'm a doctor or whatever, I try to be a better craftsperson in the vocation that I'm doing. And that, of course, enhances my livelihood, enhances my possibility of being profitable in the work world, which frees me up. You know, it gives me some freedom. 
Uh, gives me some freedom for what? Well, the third aspect of work is character, developing character. And that is where we start to think about, well, what is character? The character is not the same as personality. The personality, well, the way I use these words, personality is like someone's an extrovert or an introvert, someone likes uh, rock music, someone likes folk or whatever like that sort of those are those are like tastes and personality preferences someone likes to wear blue someone likes to wear red someone likes pizza and someone likes uh, fish whatever right so these are these are just preferences and so on but character in in a buddhist sense is is something that is the foundation for enlightenment the foundation for peace the foundation for the good life in, in, in a buddhist sense not the good life in just an aesthetic uh, sensual sense, not just like the good life of having good wine and good cheese. <laughs> it's the good life of a heart which is content, which is at ease, which is free from suffering. And 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 that aspect of developing character, of course, doesn't get emphasized in in the work world. To some extent, I suppose it does. That's something very personal, because your boss basically wants you to perform. And if you perform well. If, if you know if you're getting burnt out, he might or not might not be sympathetic. He might say, "Getting burnt out, I'll get someone else." Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. He just wants his product. See, you have to take personal responsibility for your character. If your boss is very good, he'll notice that and he'll help you. So the development of character then is the capacity to be aware of your character, to be aware of your of your emotions, to be aware of your body, to be aware of how you react to other people. Uh, to be aware of the buttons that get pressed and you get angry and you get fearful and so on. It's inner awareness. Inner awareness. Huh? This doesn't sound like much, but a lot of people are, are very reactive. They kind of know they're angry, but they don't take responsibility for their anger. They just blame. You know, racism or you know, all the horrible things we see in the news cycles. That's not, that's not awareness. That's using anger in a vicious way or whatever. People might feel fearful, but they don't really, they're not really aware of their fear. They're just, they're just fearful. People might be greedy. Uh, they want more and more of this and that. They, and they just function from it. So that functionality is not really the development of character. It's just the following of habit. And habit begets habit. Right? And it's not freedom. So it seems like freedom when you get what you want. Look at everything that I want. Now I'm happy. And then we don't get what you want, then you blame. Right? It's your fault. It's her fault. Yeah? But that's not character, that's childishness in some sense, isn't it? It's immaturity. So the capacity then to know yourself in work, to know your emotions, to know your reactions, and to take responsibility for them is the beginning of a spiritual life or a life where you develop character. So let's say, um, uh, I like giving talks. I, I talk about this all the time because I give talks. <laughs> um, I used to feel very, very anxious about giving talks. I don't now. Um, sometimes I can't stop talking. <laughs> but it was a very real problem, right? So my the character that would be stimulated by giving public talks was a, a shy self-disparaging, I can't do this character, right? And I thought, do I really want to live the rest of my life as this shy, self-disparaging, can't do this kind of character? I said, no, 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 life, you know, surely. 
So Ajahn Sumedho, my teachers, asked me to give talks. I didn't want to do it, but I saw, now this is a valuable opportunity to develop character within my work. So my work as a monk is to understand the Dhamma and then to try to share it, part of my work. Part of my work is also to do bookshelves, and, <laughs> which I enjoy. Um, so, but within that doing of the work, as it were, there's also the character that arose, and the character that arose was a character of suffering, a character of, of shyness, a lot of ego in that negative kind of a way. And the, that third aspect of work, where you take responsibility for your suffering, and you say, okay, how can I go beyond this now, is, is, the, is the use of work as a liberating vehicle. Then your work becomes your monastery. Right? Your work becomes your monastery because that's the place where you develop character. So I see fear rising, I see it, and I and I start to proliferate. I said, no, no, be mindful. Be aware of this as something that's changing. So I'm aware of this something that's changing, it shakes me, and I'm nervous, but I keep aware of it, keep aware of it. I do that for thirty-five years. <laughs> and then the fear disappears. It takes a long it, it's taken me a long time to get past fear. And I can't even say I'll be past fear. You know, give me, you know, if I have to give a talk to a big group of people I don't know or whatever, I might have fear again. But I know how to be with it. I know how to develop character within fear. Now this 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 took takes a long time, takes a lot of effort. But you think of what else is there to do? Is there, am I just going to run away from my life because it's not comfortable? Am I just going to blame people? No. So whatever it's fear, greed, hatred, delusion, whatever kinds of suffering arises, the Buddhist teaching is, is terrific. It's saying, if you can just keep your eye on suffering and notice the cause and let go of the cause, you see the end of suffering. And that end of suffering is something which is very, very deep. It's not the same as getting what you want. The end of suffering is not getting what you want. It's the end of needing anything. It's very, very different. Very, very different. When you... Oh, I was talking, I was talking with Beatrice about Netflix. Oh, that was interesting. So Netflix, you, you know this more than I. I just found out about this yesterday. And by the way, it's seven ninety nine. Someone told me last night. <laughs> Netflix... For $7.99, apparently, you can get this vast array of movies, correct? And you can watch as many as you want. Okay. Great. So what happens to the mind? <laughs> the mind likes happiness. It likes distraction. It likes certain cinematography. It likes certain kinds of music and certain kinds of plots and, and, and pretty things and such like. Or horrible things, even horror movies and so on. But whatever preferences is, the mind watches the movie and feels entranced by that and feels somewhat happy. But if the movie is boring, then I guess with Netflix, you can just do another one, right? Wow. <laughs> Not a good idea. Because what happens to your mind? What happens to your mind is your mind becomes constantly involved with an object called the screen called the movie, and your mind has no peace. Because if that movie, if, you're, if your computer breaks down, you can't get Wi-Fi, right? 
mean, you have nervous breakdown? <laughs> what do you do? Take Valium? It's, you know, it's, it's, well, you think I mean, it's absurd, but, but what happens is, of course, your mind becomes addicted to pleasure and it becomes addicted to displeasure. It always needs to go out, it needs distraction. It's a needy mind. So you think that you've got satisfaction, as the song used to go or still goes, but you don't. All you have is distraction. You're not fulfilled. You're simply distracted for some period of time. And then, if it's not TV, it's food or whatever, shopping, whatever. Now, that is not, that's developing a character, but it's a very needy character, a very addicted character, a very sensual character. Uh, uh, that's not really developing a path to Nibbana, is it? A path to peace, a path to enlightenment. So then, one day, you decide, okay, this isn't working. <laughs> and, and you decide, well, I like to make my mind peaceful. Now, why do we decide that? I think because, basically, we see Netflix, this does not work, at whatever price. <laughs> It's not getting me to peace. So there's something in us that's, you know, we who, who are willing to sit through meditation, there's something in us which wants more than just distraction, more than just entertainment, right? I mean, I do. It just seems so shallow. So, so then, you start to, to, then you try to meditate, and what do you think? I want some Netflix, right? Meditation becomes very difficult. Why? Because you're used to having something exciting the mind. Now you're watching the breath, and it's not exciting. It's neutral. Right? So your mind starts to fantasize about the, the movie you saw yesterday. Or it thinks about shopping. Or, or it thinks about anger. That idiot, why do they do that to me? And your mind gets kidnapped by moods, by emotions, by memories, by thought, all kinds of things. And now you have the difficulty of training the mind to come back to the present without something that's exciting. Without something that is driven by greed, hatred, or delusion. And that's why meditation in the beginning is quite difficult. But once you get into it, once you get into that, you see, you begin to see that that actually, that sense of settledness and stillness, which breath can give or any kind of meditation, is has a much more nourishing and a much more enriching and a much more uh, actually profitable kind of mindset because it's actually very useful when you're in the world. When your mind is settled, when your mind is centered and you're faced with challenges, you're going to respond much better. When your mind's all shaky, you're just going to react a lot. Right? So, so it's not just a sort of monks on a cushion hidden away in their kutis. The meditation is much more profound than that. It affects your whole life, your whole being all the time. But it's not fun. And when something isn't fun, that's when you start to develop character. Do you develop patience when you have everything you want? No. You develop patience when you get what you don't want. Right? Now, you know, everyone says nice things to you. Bunta, you're wonderful. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful talk, Bunta. Yes, yes, yes. I'd like to make a donation. Yes, please, please. <laughs> I don't develop any patience. Right? I just feel great. And then someone says, you, you're hopeless. You've been among 40 years and that's, you know, that's all you can say? And I, and I feel hurt. You can't say that to me. I'm the abbot. <laughs> Whatever. That's when I start to develop character because my reaction now is coming from discomfort, from getting what I don't want, 
from not getting what I do want. And that's the only way you develop character, really. When you're when you're challenged, when you're pushed, when when things are were not not so very easy. And then what is character there? What is character? Well, non-reactivity, not just buying into my ego or my my delusion or whatever it is. Not just buying into being patient, right? Being aware, uh, having the dhamma. See, this will pass. Be patient. Right speech. Right action. All of that develops character. And then that character you can see, what does that do in my relationship to the person that just criticized me? It gives me both the freedom to consider what they said. Is it true or not? Is it helpful? And also the freedom to say, well, no, I think you're wrong. But from a place of peace, from a place of freedom. Where the other, even if I react to them saying, you're completely wrong, I'm still a victim to their words. Or if I feel, oh, they're absolutely right, I'm a hopeless basket case, I'm still a victim to their words. There's no freedom. So character is the development of freedom. And, and, and it's very, very hard. Very, very hard. It's not easy. But it's very worthwhile because we as human beings don't have... We're not, we're not just animals. We're not just reactive animals that are like... Like I said, watching the deer and, and the birds. They're pretty. But, you know, they're just kind of doing what they're programmed to do. Deer do what deer do. And, but are we just animals? Like, are we just programmed for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or greed, hatred, and delusion? We have those programs in us, right? We have the animal in us, we have passion in us, but are we just limited by our programming, or is there some deeper possibility? And there is. And, and the Buddha said there's Nibbana, there's peace, there's the unconditioned. And that we realize through non-reactivity, through awareness, and coming to a kind of center which is more and more peaceful. And meditation is a important piece in that. So think about that, like right, what light, right livelihood is. There's profit, and you have to balance your books. Uh, there's skill, development of skill, and then it's development of character. All right, I'll leave that for your reflection. Uh,